to 2 Timothy chapter 3 together. Oh, and by the way, Happy New Year, right? This is a new year, and I've prayed and asked God over the past several months about what he would have for us and for our church in this new year. And my burden and, and my focus uh, won't come as a surprise to anybody here, um, but my focus uh, this morning and for the next months this year, I want to make it the year of the Bible for our church, all right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you all something at the end of the service, um, and uh, so I want you to be thinking about it, okay? And here's what I'm going to ask you for. I'm not a fan of pressure ta- tactics. I'm not a fan of like, um, let's all do this because everyone else is doing it. But I want you all to think about whether you'd be willing to commit to say, Brother Martin, at the end of the service, I will publicly, I will like stand and say, I will read one verse of God's word of the Bible every day this year, okay? There isn't a single person here that doesn't have enough time to do that, okay? So you say, I will read one verse, or if you say, I will read one chapter every single day this year. Um, and maybe you haven't, maybe you've already fallen from that, <laughs> and you've already had a day that you didn't read the Bible. Um, God has helped me, and this year, uh, so far, this is nothing to brag about when you're a pastor because it's your job, but I have, I've read an extended passage of Scripture every day so far this year, um, but it's easy to do that for the first week or so, isn't it? And then we kind of fall down. There was, in fact, there was kind of a, a funny article earlier this week. I saw a uh, man makes New Year's resolution to read the Bible every day until he gets to Leviticus or something, something like that, or read through the Bible all the way to Leviticus. But I want you to at least be thinking about that. You say to yourself, am I willing to do that? Say, Brother Martin, I will read one verse every day. Maybe that sounds kind of pitiful, but you know what? They, they say that um, habits, if you'll grab one thing, a small thing that you can do every single day, it's easier to go from one to whatever than it is to go from zero to one. Um, and so if you'll set just a habit and say, I'll read one verse every day, it's a lot easier once you've already got it open, either right here or right here, however you read your Bible, to go from one verse to go, oh, I'll read five or I'll read seven verses. But you're just disciplining yourself to every day read one verse of God's Word. And um, hopefully, in the midst of the message this morning, I'm going to talk to you about uh, maybe some of the reasons why I think that's so important. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And since I'm only reading just two verses, why don't we stand together one last time, if you can, if you're able. Let's stand together in reverence, of, in, in honor of God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, and I'll be reading the 16th and the 17th verse. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Let's bow our heads. Father... We thank you for your word. I pray that you would open it for us this morning. We pray that you would just reveal it to us in a very special way. And we'll thank you in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This this word that I hold right now, this book that we have, is very easy to take for granted in a world full of books and written communication and letters and text messages and Facebook posts and tweets and you name it. We see written words all day long, every day. And I remember sometime back seeing a statistic about how many words the average person reads every day between advertisements and when you're watching TV, the, read, the words that pop up on the screen. And it's just an astronomical number. And then they were comparing it to the number of words that a person would have read three or four hundred years ago in a day. And believe it or not, literacy is not down. It's only the literacy that, you know, of actually reading a book that's down. All of us read a lot every day. And so it's easy for us to take for granted even the medium that God chose to give us his word in, a written form, 
of actual words written down. And because of that, the places where the Bible itself talks about that written form, it's easy for us to just kind of skim over them. The very first place that it ever mentions it anywhere in the Bible is in the book of Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14. And in Exodus 17, 14, the children of Israel have fought a battle with Amalek. And uh, Amalek has come up against Israel and Israel's fought against them. And uh, Moses stood on the mountain and has his arms raised. And as long as his arms are raised, Israel prevails. Whenever he lowers his arms, Amalek prevails. Remember this? And, and he holds up his arms until the children of Israel completely defeat Amalek. And when they, when they finish that battle, the Lord speaks to Moses. This is in Exodus 17, so recognize this is before the Ten Commandments are even given. This is before the law. This is very early. God speaks to Moses and he says, um, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. The interesting thing about this is that that's exactly what God did. So many tribes and people groups that we see mentioned in the Bible, um, we can find memorials to them or, or we can find uh, monuments and even written communications from that people group. But Amalek, for 2,000 years, as I understand, nothing was found until in, in recent memory, I think they found one scrap, one fragment that mentions that nation of Amalek. God wiped them out. And God tells Joshua, or I'm sorry, tells Moses, Moses, I want you to, to write down a memorial about the battle that you fought today with Amalek and rehearse it to Joshua. In other words, retell the story, tell Joshua about what's happened, about uh, maybe Joshua wasn't even aware that Moses was on the mountain holding up his hands. Maybe Joshua didn't even see that connection between Moses' faithful obedience and Joshua's victorious battle. Rehearse this to Joshua and write it in a book. Why was it important that it be written in a book? Understand that this, when we're, when we're reading this story right here, we're stretching back almost 4,000 years in human history to the very early times of written communications. This is an almost completely oral culture. This was a culture that the way that they retained memories of events was by telling their children, and then their children would tell the stories to their children. This is the kind of, of uh, culture where the people would gather around in the evening, around uh, the sage of the tribe or the storyteller, and that man would recount for them the story. Um, when, they, when they study these kind of cultures, these people have uh, an incredibly uh, high retention level of orally recited stories because that's ingrained in their culture. But right here, Moses is commanded by God to not just recite, not just tell the story to Joshua, but to write it down. Why? Well, we know why. At least we have some hints why. We understand that when things are told verbally, many times uh, they do change, don't they, over time. Has anybody here ever played the game telephone? <laughs> You played like that little party game. Do you know what I'm talking about? This, this little party game, the way it works, you get in a big circle. Maybe there's 10 or 12 or 15 of you. And, uh, and the first person or one person standing outside the circle, they lean over to the first person and they whisper something in, in their ear. Like, um, I really enjoy eating bananas. And then the next person passes it on to the next person and the next person and the next person. Uh, but they whisper, right, so that nobody hears anybody else tell the secret. And when you get to the end of the line, the last person says what they heard said. And uh, sometimes the difference is, is, actually always the difference is quite funny. Sometimes you find that one person in the group decided to voluntarily completely edit the uh, information and completely change it to something they thought would be really funny. Or if you have young boys in the group, they'll find something really disgusting to change it to or whatever. But the point is, as long as it's verbal auditory communication, it's very easy for change to happen. And so God commands at this early point, he, he gives 
Moses a command, I want you to write this down because I want you to remember it. It's going to be forgotten. I want you to remember this. God gave us a written word so that we would remember. I'm not just transmitting to you the ideas that someone else told me, who someone else told them, who someone else told them. It's a written word that gives me a greater measure of, faith, of, dependent, of, of uh, dependence and faith on its message. Do you know that there's a big difference between this book... I don't say this just because I'm a preacher. I say it because I'm a reasonable person and I study questions out and I want to know answers for myself. There's a, a huge gulf between this book right here, our scriptures, and the Quran. Okay? And I don't say this to denigrate other religions or to put down. What I'm just saying is if we're just dealing with the facts, about 1,400 years ago, a, a man named Muhammad... Uh, began to receive what, what he believed were revelations. And when he would receive these revelations in ecstatic experiences, in ecstatic utterances, his followers would write them down on scraps of whatever they could find in that moment. And when Muhammad died, all of those scraps and fragments were brought together and, and put into a, a loose form of a book. And over the next century or a little less, there were a variety of different versions of that book that were spread throughout the Arabic world. But a, a leader that came up after Muhammad, recognizing the fragmentation that had happened to this book, he brought all of the copies, he commanded all the copies of the Quran to be brought to one place, to one person, to be given to him, and that man took all the different versions and, and, and editions and so forth of the Quran, and he made one authoritative edition of the Quran. And the Quran is in Arabic. And forever thereafter, that was the authoritative edition. So what we find today is there are not different editions and versions and perversions, like some people would call them, of the Quran. There is one Quran. And if you would talk to, an, to a Muslim person, what they would tell you is that the Quran is only inspired in the original Arabic. And if you can't read it in Arabic... You can't read the inspired word of God, of Allah, to the people, the people of Islam. It's only in Arabic, and it's one book. This book that God gave us is written over a period of 1,500 years or so by, by dozens of authors, separated by time and space on three different continents, and even to this day, what we've found are thousands, tens of thousands of fragments and manuscripts and pieces of this book written in its original Arabic and, I mean, original Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. And there are different, uh, those, they've been spread to many different countries, many different places. And so now we can dig them up and find them. And what we find is we know for certain that nobody took all of them together and corrected and made up their own little edition of the Bible and then burned all the other copies. How do we know that didn't happen? Well, because we have all the other copies. Okay, are you following me? And the difference is this. I don't say this to denigrate, but in reality, there's nobody that knows today for certain what the original Quran said, because we don't have it, and we don't have any copies to show us any changes that anybody made. They destroyed all those. But of God's word, I don't have to just accept by faith that this word is what the Apostle Paul, the Apostles Peter and James, I don't have to just accept by faith that that is the words that they gave us. The copies spread so quickly and so broadly into so many different languages that I can compare them with one another and come to a really good idea of what God has given me in written form. It's why this book is so unique. In other words, that God does not ask us just to have a blind faith in His Word, but He's given us a book that we can trust and He's given us so many reasons to trust it. Why is it a good thing that it's a written word? 
It's a word to remember, but it's also a word outside of ourselves. It's an objective standard. Exodus chapter 20, um, you should remember this because this is where we're going to be preaching. For, I'll be preaching from for the next two and a half months. Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the thing that would stand out from us when we read that is that the Ten Commandments are not Moses' idea. No human individual came up with a list of ten things and said, these are the things that I think are good rules for people. Instead, the Scripture tells us that God Himself wrote these words in tables of stone and gave them to Moses. And then Moses gave them to the people. For you and I that are accustomed to think of the idea of a moral law and a supreme God, and we put those two things together so that God is the one who gave that law, and that comes as natural to us as breathing. Do you understand what I'm saying? All of us, when we think about the moral law, the oughtness of life, like what we should do, we think about those rules. You may not agree with anything in this Bible, okay? You might be sitting here this morning and you say, Brother Martin, I don't believe the Bible. I think it's full of hogwash. But there's still a set of rules that you believe humans should follow, and you believe that you didn't come up with them. You actually believe that in some way they came from God or from God's or from a spirit, whatever it is that you believe about God. And it's hard for us to realize how earth-shattering that idea was when it first came in the form of the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. Because in that day and age, they did not think about God like you and I do. We are naturally given, most of us, this is changing in our culture, but most of us are given to thinking about God as something that's other than his creation. God is something other than. But that is not the way they thought about God. God was simply the invisible spirits that inhabited the things around them. He was intimately connected to the material world that they saw. Any of you that read Greek mythology when you were in high school or in college, uh, most of us would at least know one or two or three stories or maybe names or maybe just little sketches of the stories of the Greek gods. When I say something like Zeus or uh, Mount Olympus, bells go off, right? We know what I'm talking about. And if you read the stories, what you find is that what the Greeks thought about God was not at all what you and I think about, about gods. God, gods. They, in their mind... The gods were just like humans. They were just bigger. So humans get angry for no reason. Gods might get angry for no reason. Uh, humans are immoral and they, they lie and cheat and steal. Gods are immoral and they lie and cheat and steal. That's hard for us to even imagine to think of the supreme God of the universe being literally immoral because we see the laws flowing from him. Now, the Greeks and the early cultures, they would have seen, they would have believed in a, in, a, in a rule of life that you should follow, and they believed in gods, but they didn't identify them with one another. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you following me? In other words, they saw, they knew that deep within their hearts there were rules that they should obey. And they did believe that there was gods out there somewhere, but they didn't think that those two things had the same source. It was the Israelites that first and almost alone among all the pagan peoples of the, of the early centuries of human history that put those two pieces together and recognized that the supreme God of the universe was also the one that gave the law. And what that means for us today is that the law of God is something outside of ourselves, outside of you and me, and it's something that all of us have to answer to. In one of, in the very last conversation that I had with Josiah, he was calling me about something. Uh, he had a question. Uh, it was a question about something called sola scriptura. Does anybody ever heard me mention that before? Okay. Sola scriptura. And somebody's going, it sounds like he's talking another language. It's actually Latin. And what it means is scripture alone. So in our church, we believe that Scripture alone gives us all that we need to know for, to be justified. In other words, to be made right with God, 
all of the guidelines, all of the rules, if you might say. The whole story of mankind's redemption is contained between these two covers. And we believe that anything that's not in this book, anything that's not contained in this, it cannot be a rule of faith and practice. In other words, I, I'm not allowed to make up new rules. So if you're wondering why in our church, for instance, we don't believe in something called purgatory or um, a number of other things, it's because they, they aren't in here. And because they're not in here, then we don't accept those. If you're wondering why we don't pray to saints or why we, all these different things. It's because we, we say this book that God has given us, these words, they are the completed and final word of God to us as his people. But my friend had a question, and it's a good question. And maybe you've thought of the same question before. And what he said is this. He said, well, the problem I have with that scripture alone, he said, I'm just curious. He said, it, it sounds like that it's an extra biblical rule about not having any extra biblical rules. <laughs> Do you follow what he's saying, what he's thought there? He's saying it sounds like that you've made a rule that the Bible never kind of really says, and you're kind of adding it, and then you're saying, well, we can't have any more. That's why I read 2 Timothy 3, because first of all, it's not an, it's not an extra biblical rule. It's, it's one that's right in there. When the scripture says that uh, the word of God is, is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. And then it goes on to say, so that the man of God may be perfect, complete. What's it telling us? It's telling us that the, the word of God has everything that we need. It's an objective reality outside of ourselves. And if it's going to be outside of ourselves, it means that we don't get to add to it or take away from it. Because then I would be Lord over the Bible. I would be the one that was actually in charge. It's what makes the Christian faith unique, is our dependence and adherence to this book, this word. In fact, some of us are sitting here and maybe your question is, but Martin, maybe you don't add to it or take away from it, but someone did. The church just decided what was going to be part of the Bible and what wasn't. I'm glad you asked that question because that's, that's really, historically, it's not what happened. What happened is that a church that was still being persecuted, that was still underground uh, in many places and in many ways, together spread across countries and separated by hundreds of miles, agreed with incredible unanimity. In other words, all of them agreed, even while not in a, they didn't have a conference, they didn't all come together, it didn't work like that. There was strong agreement about what books they believed were part of this word. In other words, they didn't decide to give this book authority. They submitted themselves to the authority that they already recognized in that book. Do you see the difference? Can you, can you understand there's a difference between those two things? I'll tell you how unanimous their, their agreement was, is that there are only two little books that there was even a discussion about that weren't included, and there were two books that were included that there was discussion about whether or not to include them. And those two books that were included are the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation. The reason why, uh, Revelation was rather late, and the book of Hebrews never identifies an author. And that was the only reason the, the late writing and the lack of a written author were the question marks around those two books Shepherd of Hermes and, and one other book that escapes me in this moment. There was a question about whether to end up including them. And they chose finally to not include them, but we still have them. And some books like that can be good to read. There's nothing wrong with reading the Apocrypha or the, um, the books that are included in some Bibles that aren't in my Bible or the Pew Bible there. Nothing wrong with them, but they're not recognized by the church universally as having authority over every Christian. The fact that I don't get to sit in, in judgment over this word makes it an objective truth. But some of you might ask, well, Brother Martin, what about interpreting it? Do you get to, you get to decide how to interpret it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question too. Because uh, I don't. Instead, what I believe the scripture calls us to is for us together as the gathered body of believers to together come to an agreement. Just like I don't believe that one person got to decide what was in the Bible and what wasn't, I believe that one person doesn't get to decide how to interpret the Bible. 
But what we do, it's when Scripture talks about mutual submission. It says, let every one of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility. When the Scripture says Jesus in Matthew 18, he says that uh, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. And if he won't hear you, then kick him out of the church. I'm sorry, I misquoted there a little bit. What he says is, if he won't hear you, then bring him before two or three witnesses. And if he won't hear them, then bring him before the church. Why does Jesus say that the last step before someone being cast out of fellowship or removed from fellowship, why is the last step for them to be brought before the church as a whole? It's so that one person or two people or three people aren't deciding what is and is not sin. Do you see that? Are you following the, the, the thought here? That I don't get to decide that I don't, I don't like uh, what you do, and so I get to decide that that must be a sin. Instead, the church together determines what God is saying to us from this word. And I believe that when we follow that method, when we submit ourselves to God's ruling in the way that we administer the word, it protects us. It protects us from a kind of relativity where it's just, well, you know, every man does whatever's right in his own eyes. And it also protects us from a kind of authoritarian dictator who gets to determine everything for everybody else. Instead, together, we agree and submit ourselves to the objective word of God. And the third thing, the third thing about this written word that God has given us that I think is so beautiful and so amazing. Because it's outside of us, we didn't invent it, we just submit ourselves to it. Because no one person gets to interpret it, and because it's been preserved and passed down to us in a written form, it becomes a timeless law for reform. There's always something that we can go back to. I, I want you, if just take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22, and I, I want you to see for yourselves what's going on in, in, this, in this story. Um, this is in the midst of a really dark period in Israel's history. King Hezekiah, a good and godly king, has reigned over Israel for many years. Um, but late in his reign, God gives him a son, and his son's name is Manasseh. Manasseh reigns for the longest period over Israel of any of their kings. He reigns over, I'm sorry, Judah for 56 years. And he is the most wicked king that Judah has. In fact, from there on, throughout the closing chapters and moments of, is, of Judah's history, God will say again and again when they turn back to God, he will stay his judgment, but he says... That judgment is going to come. Why? Because the sins of a Manasseh who filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. The problem was the injustice and evil that Israel had embraced. They had walked away from God's law, their good law in the, in the Torah that was given to them, and they had embraced their own ways. And what happens whenever we reject God's objective truth and we embrace our own way of finding truth? People get hurt. We get hurt. And the weakest people get hurt, the weak, the poor, the defenseless. Because whenever we give some human individual that authority, they misuse it, they abuse it, they twist it, and they destroy with it. And children of Israel had reached a point of such wickedness that they are sacrificing their children to idols of Molech. Hezekiah is king, and Hezekiah leads Israel down a dark path. He repents at the very end of his life, but it makes no difference in the trajectory, the, the, the arc of Israel's history, Judah's history. And um, Hezekiah's son, Ammon, reigns after him, and that's from verses 19 through verse 26. But after Ammon dies, Josiah takes the, the throne of, of Judah. He's very young when he takes the throne, but the scripture tells us that from very early in his life, at 16 years of age, 
um, he begins to seek after uh, God. Um, he reigned for 31 years over, over Judah. And he does what's right in the sight of God. But I want you to see why he does this. There's something that happens in Josiah's life, and that's the reason why the whole story changes. Um, in verse 3, it says that in the 18th year of Josiah, Josiah's been king for 18 years, and he sends Shaphem, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe to the house of the Lord, uh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest to sum up the silver that's brought into the house of the Lord, the keepers of the door have gathered of the people. Just briefly, Obviously, when the children of Israel embrace idols, the church, the temple of God, falls into disrepair. So Josiah has begun a project to raise money to rebuild and, and renew the temple. And what, what he says in, uh, in verse 8, when they begin this remodeling project on the temple, Hilkiah the high priest says unto Shaphem the, the, the scribe, I have found the book of the law, a written word in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it unto the hand of them that do the work, have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he rent his clothes. That's a sign of deep mourning. And we're going to stop our reading right there, but you can keep it open if you'd like and just you can skim down through there and you see what happens is that the king absolutely falls on his face in humility before God and repents. Why does he do that? It's not because a preacher came and wagged his finger in Josiah's face and said, Josiah, the, king, the, the people of Judah have committed wickedness and, and you need to turn back to God. It's because a written word has come to Josiah and Josiah recognizes its authenticity, that it is from God, and he recognizes that they have broken God's law, they've disobeyed God's law, and there's something for them to go back to. It's not just a... Well, back in the golden years when everything was beautiful and good. Instead, it's back when we obeyed this book or even when we didn't. We can always come back to this word. The thing that has marked the people that we are, the Protestant movement, the thing that was important about it was saying this word is the authority right here. This Bible is what we obey. The reason why we have a pulpit in here this is why. Because the reformers, people like Martin Luther and, and, uh, and John Calvin, they wanted to bring the Word of God back to center stage. They put this Word in the center of their worship. And what that allowed them to do was to call people back to something that wasn't just one person's idea, but it was God's eternal revealed Word. Do you see why that's important? Do you see why that matters? Because then it's not just me against you, and it's not even just me plus God against you. It's actually God on one side and all of us submitting ourselves together to what God's Word has to say. This has marked us as a people. And if we're going to experience renewal as a church, it will have to center around this revealed Word the Word of God that lives and abides forever. I could take you on a little tour through history at the way that this book has impacted and affected our history. Every area of our lives has been affected by the reality of this book. Tom Holland is a secular historian who is not a Christian. He's not a professing believer at all. But this is what he says. I'm going to paraphrase him if you'll allow me to. I'm not going to quote him, but if, if somebody has a question about my sources, I can give them to you after the service. But Tom Holland says this. He said, when you turn back to Greek and Roman thinkers of 2,000 years ago, names that would be somewhat familiar to you and I, Cicero, Philo, uh, um, uh, the, uh, Aristotle, 
He said, when you read these men, he specifically referenced Cicero. He said, this was a man whose life in many ways looked similar to mine. He was a fairly wealthy man, uh, landowner, um, and a man of leisure, uh, a writer. But he said, when I read his writings, it's obvious that there's a chasm between us in the way the man thought about human rights, in the way he thinks of women, in the way he thought of slaves, in the way he thought of human life, in the way he thought about God and religion and morality. There was a world of difference between you and I and the people that we think of as our roots of, of Greek and Roman thought and philosophy. Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, said, when I read Paul, who I have nothing in common with, I'm not a Christian, and Paul was. I've never been a Jew, and Paul was. I'm not a traveler, and Paul was. Paul was this firebrand of an itinerant preacher all over the Roman world. And yet... I recognize when I read him that all the patterns of thinking that I have about human rights, about women, about morality, that Paul and I think more alike than the people that I would think I should be like. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you following me? What I'm trying to say here is that the gospel itself and the proclamation of the written word of God and the spread of that word throughout our world opened a chasm between ourselves and everything that came before it that the coming of the written word of God and its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the, it's the hinge on, that all of history turns on. And even people that don't accept this word as true still recognize the difference that it made. I could point you to the fact that the first books to be printed were Bibles on the Gutenberg Press. And the Reformation was aided by the distribution of God's word in the language of the people. Many of you would know that the Bible that we read of, read out of on a Sunday morning, the King James Bible, gave us so many parts of what our language is today. Modern English was shaped and informed by the King James Bible. That doesn't make it infallible. It just means that it had a profound effect on our on our culture. And when I say not infallible, I, you understand I'm saying the scripture is infallible, not the individual version. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sorry, I want to clarify that. The, the, the Bible has given us our patterns of the way we even think about this world. But it goes back further than that. I was amazed when I found that the, what, the form that you see right here, what we think of as a book, you realize that when we're reading the scripture and, and it says that they brought the book of the law to Josiah. You know that it didn't look like this, right? It wasn't a, a leather-bound little um, bundle of sheets that, that Josiah could flip back and forth through and say, oh, that's neat. This is what would have been called uh, 15, 16, 17, 1800 years ago. They would have called it a codex, a group of sheets of paper stitched together. They don't know if Christians invented the codex, but what we do know is that Almost all of the early codex, the things that look like this, were Bibles. Why did they do that? Well, it's because they recognized that even though this is made up of 66 individual books, they're all given by one author who stands behind the human authors and orchestrates the book, and it stands as a unity. It's not two different books, an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's not 66 different books of individual authors. Instead, it's the book that God has given us, His Word. It's a library bound together under two covers that is God's Word to us. As I referenced the King James Bible for the English people, Calvin's translation for uh, Swiss, and especially the, the German translation by Martin Luther, did the same thing for German, the German language, that the English uh, the King James Bible did for the English people. That modern German, the language, was shaped and formed by Luther's translation of the Bible. What I'm saying is that what we have today, so many of the blessings that we take for granted, are the product and the result of the fearless proclamation and the love of God's people for God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. When the writer of Hebrews, who's so deeply steeped and informed by the Old Testament scriptures and alludes to them constantly, but when he begins his epistle, what he says is this, that 
God, who at various times and in so many ways He spoke to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. The book of John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Word that was with God. So we have here this Word, and we have the revealed Son of God who we call the Word. And there's this beautiful way that those two things intersect because all of history turns on Jesus and what He did for us. Jesus fulfills the Word of God in two ways. Uh, John chapter 5 and verse 30, Jesus says to those accusing Him and, and, with, and opposing Him, He says to them, which of you accuse me of sin? Scripture tells us that Jesus was the only human who ever lived who perfectly obeyed God's law. You and I, from the earliest memories we have, we were disobeying His law. And the only way that we're able to obey His law today is by the Spirit of Christ within us that gives us the power and the ability to obey what He asks us to do. But Jesus perfectly obeyed His law. In, in 1 John chapter 3, um, Scripture tells us that, that in Him was no sin. Jesus was the sinless one, so He fulfilled the Word of God by obeying God's law. It was as if God had given us a rule, a standard of human behavior, but it was easy for any of us to look at that Word, at that standard of behavior and say, you know what, that's a nice standard, but none of us can do that. We're humans, God, after all. And Jesus came to demonstrate to us that obedience was possible, but only through His Spirit. Jesus fulfilled the law. I want to make very clear it's impossible to obey God's law without the Spirit of Christ within you. It is not possible without that. But with that Spirit within you, it is possible for us to obey. Do you know that for 1,900 years of, of recorded history, um, for thousands of years, I should say, that no human that we were aware of, since I should say since the dawning of keeping accurate time, no human had ever been able to run faster than four minutes for one mile, or one mile in four minutes. And early in the last century, Roger Bannister broke that barrier. Before he broke it, there were scientists that were arguing that it was physically impossible for a human to finish a mile run in less than four minutes. And a short time after Roger Bannister broke that, that barrier, uh, now it's, it's not at all uncommon for a, a runner to be able to break that barrier. But someone had to demonstrate, first of all, that it was possible. And Jesus shows us, through His Spirit, He can empower and enable us to obey God's law. And the, the second way that Jesus fulfills the law of God is by embodying the whole story of redemption in Himself and by fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, uh, there's a story there about the disciples on the Emmaus Road after Jesus' death and before the news of His resurrection has reached all of them. They're, they're going down the road. They're sad. And Jesus suddenly is standing beside them. They don't know it's Jesus. This traveler's walking along with them and He says, why, do you, why are you so depressed? Why are you so sad? And they say, well, we're just talking about the sad things that have been happening in Jerusalem. Do you, do you not know these things? And he says, well, what things? And they tell Jesus the story about Jesus without the important detail about his resurrection. And Jesus says to them, without them knowing it's Jesus, kind of shakes his head and he says, oh, fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Son of Man to have suffered and to have been received up into glory? And then the scripture says, this is the verse that I, I gave you, the reference, Luke 24, 27. Jesus says to them, it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the things concerning himself. Jesus is the centerpiece of history 
and he is the plot line of this Bible. He fulfills the word of God. It's as if all of God's word, Old Testament and New Testament, points towards Jesus. And Jesus himself, when he came, he pointed back to God's word. Do you see that? Do you see what I'm saying? It's as if they come together in this way. Jesus himself perfectly and fully embodies and reveals to us who God is and what he is like. And the scriptures inerrantly and perfectly and fully reveal to us what Jesus was like. And we see in these pages God himself reflected at us. And as we look at this word, it shows us not only God, but it shows us ourselves. It shows us our own hearts. It reveals to us the ways and the places that we fall short of God's word. That we are still needing to draw nearer to God's law so that it can change us and transform us and reshape us and remake us and mold us into the people that God has called us to be. I want to just take one moment because I've realized that I said something that might be very easily misunderstood. That When I mentioned Roger Bannister and, and the ability to obey God's law, we need to be so careful in that we recognize that none of us have fulfilled God's law in the way that Jesus did. And yet at every moment and every choice set before us, Jesus has revealed to us the way in which to obey God's law. And although all of us, for as long as we live, we'll need His grace and His help in our lives to be what He's called us to be, He showed us that it's possible for us to please God through His Holy Spirit working out in us and, and showing us who we need to be. And that's the reason why, as I've prayed and, and asked God what He would have for us this year, as we've read this morning from Psalm 119. The whole psalm from start to finish, all 176 verses, is a, is a psalm of joy and praise about the law of God. Every single verse except two mentioned the law in some form, either judgments or, or statutes or, or uh, righteous commands. They talk about the law of God. And, and as we read this passage together over the next few months, we're going to be looking at those Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 in detail. We're going to look at each one because what I've recognized is that it's easy for us to talk about this word. But what you all need and what I need is for this word to be applied to our hearts until it brings us to a humble repentance and faith till we look to Jesus as the one who fulfilled that law and we look within our own hearts and we cry out for his cleansing power to, to make us into the people that he's called us to be. I, I read a, a quote um, a few weeks ago that said something like, any area of life where the word of God is not applied to the lives of people in the church, you will see people trying to live their lives without that light and they're stumbling in the dark day to day. That's kind of a paraphrase, but... What my burden for us is this year to decide I'm going to really, maybe for the first time in my life, I'm going to begin reading to understand and obey God's word. God uses his word. Our minds and our, our, our thinking, our rational thinking, and our impressions and emotion and the Holy Spirit all grounded, under, undergirded by the Word of God. There are some people that would really emphasize, and I've heard people emphasize it like this, like you need to hear God's voice, like God speaks to you. This isn't what's important. What's important is like you hear God say what you need. And then there's people that say, well, I mean, this Word's important, but what's very important is that you think rationally through what you should do and what your life, the kind of choices you should make. Now, I want to submit something to you. I think that both of these are both wrong and right, okay? They're wrong in this sense, that if we try to behave in a rational way without grounding our lives on God's Word, you don't have to look around at the world around you very long to realize that we live in a world humans don't act rationally. Do we all agree? Humans don't act rational. 
Humans act selfishly and destructively. And if we're going to curb that tendency, it, we, it won't be because we're super rational and smarter and have better brains than other people. It will be because we've submitted ourselves to God's word. All of us know people that follow their heart, their emotions, these impressions of the spirit, and it leads them to all kinds of dark places. The only way that we can hear our emotions and our spirit is if it's informed by God's word. So that's why I see this word as central to our worship and to our church. And I just say to you this morning, I don't know how to say it in a better way than just to say right here and now, we must have God's word as people. I, I believe that this morning I, I, I had a quote that I wanted to give to you all and, and I, I almost decided not to include it, but I, I believe that I shall, that this morning I'm going to, to read this quote. It's going to take me just a moment to pull it up, but it, it sums up for me what I find so important and central and life-giving about God's Word. It's, it's from the Reformation of the nation of England. Uh, it's a, it's um, from a book called The Unquenchable Flame, and this is from the time when, when God is breathing over the nation of England through His Holy Spirit and just uh, pouring out a spirit of conviction and hunger for the Word of God. It's, it's an incredible story if you ever have a chance to read it. And this quote is found in a book called The Unquenchable Flame about the Reformation. And the uh, statement has said that there was a preacher named John Rogers uh, preaching a sermon in a little village of Dedham on the Suffolk-Essex border. This is a location in England. And John Howe, records the memory of a man named Thomas Goodwin who was listening to this sermon. He sat there under the sermon, and this is what, this is what was said. Some of you have heard me give this quote before, and if you have, forgive me, but it's, it's a quote that bears repeating. And I'm quoting now. In that sermon, he, Rogers, falls into an expostulation, or he's, he's crying out about God's word, an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. I'm afraid it is more neglected in our days. He personates God to the people. Well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Do you use my Bible so, or do you abuse my Bible like that? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. Recognize that these are people that had been given the word of God in the English language and then it was taken away from them. Realize that. That's the context. Not in that moment, but that's in recent history. And he takes up the Bible from his cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it and carrying it from them, but immediately turns again and impersonates God to the people. I'm sorry, impersonates the people to God falls down on his knees, cries, and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatsoever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us thy Bible. Only take not away thy Bible. And then he personates God again to the people. Say you see it so? Well, I will try you a little longer. And here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it. Whether you will love it more, whether you will value it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. And the man who recounted the story said that it put the people in such a agony over the word that they were crying out, literally out loud, they were crying out, crying out for God not to take away his word. The preacher himself was overcome, much more so than I this morning, overcome such that as he left, he was doubled over his horse, weeping for the thought that God might take his word from them. And you and I, inundated with images and with words and with advertising and with lies all around us,
God has given us his truth. This is in some ways an introductory message to my, to my uh, series on the Ten Commandments. And as I already said to you, the reason why I'm doing that is I, I don't know how to say it to you differently than this. As a crowd, we are self-sufficient and neglectful of God's word. We do not treat it as we should. And if there's one thing that I could bring to you this morning, if you wonder why I'm standing behind this pulpit this morning instead of out there, it's because I'm trying to somehow grip you with the importance of this book. I've realized that I can turn preaching, if I'm not careful, into a kind of performance that's more about me than it is about this. I don't know how to impress in you any more deeply. This book is what matters. And your obedience to it is what matters. As I told you all this, this morning, twice, I've requested prayer and I mentioned him in passing. For those of you that have just slipped in, Josiah Wheeler that was at our house for, six month, for two weeks, six months ago, lived with us and ate around our table. In one month, he'll be 17 years old. A week ago, uh, during our family reunion on uh, Friday, so just over a week ago, I spoke to him over the phone. And uh, one week later, uh, he didn't come to Bible study. And um, his pastor went to his house, and uh, Josiah is not with us anymore. Josiah is dead. And I finished a sermon Friday night, and I came out to my car, and I looked down, and there was a text message. I didn't know what I just told you guys. I looked down at my phone, and there was a text there. Um, and it said, the sheriff just left our house. Red and Keith, his mother and father, are in Montana. He's in Alaska. The sheriff just left, left our house. And that's what she said, Josiah is dead. Um, not a suicide, no foul play, uh, just a freak thing. We don't know even what happened. He was in his little house, little cabin, and uh, he was in the bathroom. And I'm not, he was, he was in the shower. Uh, and maybe he fell. We, we don't know. But what I do know is this. That right now, in Josiah's life, there's a lot of things now that don't matter at all anymore. But what he did with this, what he did with this, will matter forever. There's some of you that are distracted by life, and there's a lot of reasons why. I understand. I really do. But you have got to get a grip on your priorities and what your life looks like. You all know, I, I do my best. I'm, as a person, I'm not, I don't like to be confrontational. But sometimes that's what God calls us to. And I'm just saying this morning, I don't want to be sitting up here, standing up here behind your casket and preaching a funeral where I know that I, I'll believe that you went to heaven but there was just so much that needed fixed. And if you're sitting here this morning and you think, is Pastor Martin going on a scare tactic or something? No. This isn't about that. This is about reality. This is, what, this is about what's really true. A scare tactic is me getting up here and making up a bunch of stories to hope that somehow you kind of like feel guilty for a few days. You know what I hope? I hope that the Holy Spirit gets his talent so deep in your heart that you never shake loose of it. We've had times in our church where I felt like the presence of God came and spoke to some people, and maybe you've been one of those people. And for a day or a week or a month, it made a difference. But if that is not informed by a day-to-day, -day, like, it has to change you forever. And I don't know how to say it except to just put it like that. I knew in my own heart, I'm still, uh, honestly, I'm standing here this morning. If you wonder why I'm a little overwrought, my head is still spinning from that text, from looking down and realizing it's over. I've had my last conversation with him.
I won't have another one until someday when I see him and everything that I could change or make a difference in will all be over. And you know what came to me in that moment? It wasn't you all. I didn't go, oh man, I need to tell them about this. You know what came to me? Martin, you're 33. You stand up before a group of people every week and you talk to them. And if all you do is talk, you're failing them and maybe you'll make it to heaven. But you will not be able to say with Paul, my hands are clean of any man's blood because I was faithful to share the gospel with you. So what I'm telling you today is as we stand on the gate of a new year, God being my helper, I'm just going to be as honest as I know how to be with you all. When I stand behind here, I'm just going to shoot straight because I have to. I'll answer for it someday. The